Hello, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above Dongzhang District in Beijing. With me is my co-host, David Moser. David, how you doing? And give us a little timestamp, if you could. A lot of trepidation about what's happening in the Ukraine right now, with Vladimir Putin invading. And so, uh, yeah, that's the background with which we start this interesting podcast, which I'm looking forward to because we have a special guest. That's right. We're going to be talking about information asymmetry between the United States and China. And joining us as our special guest, Jung Yajun, the host of The Woman podcast. Yajun is a longtime media watcher, community organizer, and she's the head of content and interaction for a large multinational based in Geneva with an office here in Beijing. How are you doing, Yajun? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Today, we are really pleased to have Yajun join us because we're going to be talking about something that I think really requires the perspective of somebody who's been embedded in the information ecosystem here in China. And of course, Yajun, in her capacity, both in media, public relations, and now in NGOs, is, is the perfect person to talk about this. And the, the issue here is information asymmetry. I and mean, this is a topic that David has written quite a bit about. Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't prepped for this podcast, so it's going to be rather spontaneous. But in a way, Jeremiah, you and I have been engaged in, in this kind of a process for a long time because I assume that you, like me, sort of value your, your, your job as a teacher because you and I both share the idea that U.S.-China relationship is very important and uh, it's very important that Americans know something about this country. The reason I wrote these papers is that as the, in my 30 or so years doing this kind of thing, it just always seemed to me that there's a kind of an information asymmetry between the two cultures, which is to say... You know, when I talk to my Chinese friends, many of them, like Yajun here, speak beautiful English. They've watched many, many American movies. They've read American books. They've caught up. They, they can name many American presidents, key events in American history, and so forth. And yet, uh, the, our American students often come with no idea at all about China. They can't tell you what the Belt and Road Initiative is. They can't name a single dynasty. Uh, they don't know who Deng Xiaoping is. They might know Yao Ming, but they don't know Deng Xiaoping, right? And this goes on and on and on, and it makes me, uh, I think that this is kind of a dangerous situation because when we see regimes like the Trump administration, when he surrounded himself with some so-called China experts or hands that really knew very little about China, I think that it's dangerous. And the American electorate, too, I think it's important that people at least have some sense of China. So this asymmetry to me seemed like something that was... Uh, always kind of dangerous and s disturbing and something I was trying to rectify. And now in the wake of COVID-19, then it seems like it's even more critical because we're, we're losing uh, another generation or another few years of, of young people who are not going to be able to come here and c get a first-hand understanding. So my, my, the reason I'm glad to have Yajun here is, is that I'm sort of wondering, do Chinese people have this impression or, or do you agree that there is this kind of asymmetry between uh, Chinese people that uh, educated people, uh, their, their knowledge of, of, uh, of American culture, that there is an asymmetry there between, uh, I just want to check your, my intuitions. Do you think that Chinese educated people such as you have a better grasp of, of American culture and American history than we Americans do? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Uh, there is a asymmetry, but I'm not surprised about it. Um, because for a long time, you know, look at our education system, you know, a lot of things that we learn from the college actually come from U.S., come, come from Europe. So when I was in college, you know, my um, first U.S. TV show I watched is Sex and the City, and I, I watched that for so many times. Um, it's not only me. I mean, all of my friends uh, in my social circles, and they work can, like you said, name a lot of things about the U.S., you know, TV shows is definitely a strong self-power, really popular among Chinese-educated um, young people. I think right now with the, the post-90s, post-2000 generation with them grow up, they absorb even more because there's a, a lot of um, uh, access to uh, culture, you know, to music, to uh, information. So I would say that this kind of a uh, young generation know the U.S. much better, um, particularly on the, you know, on the surface, you know, particularly on the culture, uh, on the uh, movies, content, this part. So you're talking about soft power because of America's yeah. predominance. Yeah. What, what, so what, what advantage do you think that gives uh, these generations of Chinese people uh, in terms of, 
uh, under, understanding you know America culturally and historically mm. is there some advantage to that I think definitely you know for me you know as a person who kind of a took advantage of that, you know, it definitely opened a lot of people's view. Um, China's education system is not, um, doesn't encourage people to have a more critical view or have a, you know, the world view about things. And a lot of people get information from one side, from, from one media. Xinhua pretty much dominate a lot of coverage uh, in China. And what the other commercial media basically following that kind of a coverage, that kind of a tone, being able to have access to other information about Europe, about the U.S., definitely, definitely open people's mind. And I, I do think a lot of a younger generation benefited from it. You know, they definitely benefit knowing more and also have a different views. At the same time, I think when you're talking about asymmetry, that also means that on the other side, the information is quite limited. Like you mentioned that potentially in the U.S., people know very little about China, but that, that's also something that I observed. I think before we go to the U.S. side, I think I, think I want to talk a little bit more about the, the Chinese side and how things may have changed, evolved between, say, the time that you were in college and today. And I think one of the things that we have seen is that the, the current government was pretty aware of the amount of influences that were coming in, both soft power through cultural products and also uh, through textbooks and things like that. A lot of the materials that are being used in the universities were, were translations of materials from overseas. And uh, my understanding is in recent years, the Ministry of Education, at the especially at the secondary and uh, you know, primary level, but also at the university level, has, has put restrictions or limitations on the amount of materials that can be used from abroad. And of course, we've seen periodic, sporadic, not always terribly, there's not always a lot of follow through, but sporadic attempts to kind of limit the amount of cultural products that are coming in. And certainly we're, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that in the, the tightening of what content's being licensed for public viewing in China. Yeah, but it, I don't think it stopped people from finding it. One interesting thing I, I found recently is that the younger generation, I would say post the 2000 generation, they are totally comfortable eating hamburger and listening to American music, watching American TV show while um, not a big fan of the US. That's something I feel amazing, but it's, it's really true. You know, they are the generation who are more patriotic I would say, patriotic in quotation mark, um, that our generation, I feel like for the post-80 or 90s, at that time, China is not as strong as today. So we feel like there's a lot of things that we should learn from the U.S. So, I mean, I studied in, in uh, Europe for two years. So it was an amazing experience for me. And uh, I think for a lot of my peers, feel, people feel like, oh, we're, we're still, we have so much to learn. You'll see like 2008 is kind of a turning point that, you know, China becomes so strong. And also the financial crisis didn't help for the U.S. image in China, right? And also the, cri uh, the, the, the COVID crisis really you know, make people feel disappointed about how the most, <laughs> the strongest, the most powerful country handle COVID so badly. So when, if you talk to the students, you know, the college students, I had some luck, um, privilege to talk to some of our interns. They, they, they don't worship, the, worship is a strong word, where they, they don't Admire. think, yeah. Yeah, I, I think admire is the word. They don't admire um, U.S. with a culture like my generation, I would say. They feel like U.S. have so many problems and China is in a much better position. But they still like the music. They still love the brands, right? The luxury brands, all of that. So this kind of a, I, I would say, contradictory uh, phenomenon it's not an issue for them. They're totally comfortable with it. Well, actually, this makes perfect sense because mm -hmm. more information doesn't necessarily mean your opinion of the other, exactly. the other country will in increase. In fact, quite the opposite. Exactly. Uh, when I was here in the 80s and early 90s, before you were even born, maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, I, hear, I would hear Chinese people ask me questions like, uh, so when uh, American children move out of the house to go to college and, and move away from the home, when they go back home to visit their parents, do their parents charge them rent? 
<laughs> and I would think, boy, they, this lack of understanding, that is a, a very serious misimpression they have. But now it's, it's, it's the opposite. They're usually very, you know, they're very comfortable with American culture, they, which is now becoming sort of world culture. But you mentioned this, this example of, you know, they're not uh, sort, of, sort of so enamored of American mm. culture because they see its, they see it, its faults. They mm. see its yeah. good things and yeah. its bad things. The COVID-19 thing is a good example of this asymmetry I'm talking mm. about. Because I think that, uh, from what I see, there's been a lot of coverage on the media about the U.S. disaster and right. also other countries in the West in general. Yeah in the Chinese media. And of course, they don't need to just go to Chinese state media. They can also get, they get on the internet, they, they exactly. listen to the BBC, they just see these shows directly, right? Yeah. So they have a, they have a, they're very conversant in the issues and they know kind of w the dysfunction of the American culture, why this happened. But the opposite is not the case in the United States. Most Americans have no idea what's happening in China. And even the bare fact of the, of the death rate, I would, I would I would uh, venture to say probably 90% of Americans have no idea that China with 1.4 billion people had less than 6,000 people or so uh, who died, mm. whereas in the U.S. it's approaching 1 million. Most people just do not know that, much less uh, why China has achieved this kind of success. The American media is so domestically focused. People don't pay attention to the outside world. And for me, as 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 we move forward and make policies and things like this, this asymmetry could be is, is very serious. Could be very dangerous. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and at least bring this up, which is the it's becoming much harder for international reporting on China to take place. You know, there was a time ten years ago, around the time of the last Olympics, when things had opened up, and it was certainly not as easy as reporting if you were a say Chinese reporter in the U.S. But there was opportunities for people to travel and do the stories and talk to people, interview mm. uh, academics, interview people who knew stuff, and there was some really good coverage. Now, what's happened in the last few years, of course, is that the coverage in some ways was a little getting a little too close to inconvenient you know, truths, if we will. And we see also in a, as a result of a worsening geopolitical situation, many reporters being kicked out, reporters being harassed, you know, reporters that are, aren't able to get visas to come in. I think that's one of the reasons. But I was a, a reporter for foreign media, American uh, newspaper from 2007 to 2011. I saw the fact that even back then, even before the 2000, when the Chinese government was in a you know, relatively open arm to help welcome people to come in, I would say that the coverage from a lot of foreign media is too simplified, a lot of content. I'm not saying that the, the, the reporters are not doing a good job. They, they are trying their best. I, I work with many of them. But China is a complicated world. The, the difference between Beijing, between this apartment, to somewhere in the Hebei province, the gap is huge. Hey, be careful. My relatives are all from <laughs> Hebei. I'm or Tianjin, my, my, my family. <laughs> okay. Be careful. My relatives live in this apartment. <laughs> no, my, my point is that there are so many layers of uh, complications, right? So in China, if you cover something, you cannot only cover one phenomenon. You need to talk about the background. You need to bring in you know, different stakeholders into the conversation. Give you a very small example. Back in the day when we tried to talk about human rights issue, it's always easy to criticize certain situation of a human rights issue. You know, 1989 activist was attacked by the Chinese government in 2007, all of that. But I am very glad that my colleague also wrote an article giving the context that if this kind of situation happens in 1980s, the government would arrest the people immediately and took them away. You, you can never find them. Um, just to say that, you know, a lot of things that the foreign media, uh, foreign correspondents, you know, try to cover certain things, but either they are not new. Um, for example, back in the day, Wall Street Journal covered a piece about Alibaba talking about brushing water. Um, that was a huge piece and had a hu huge impact to Alibaba's stock price. But that situation exists there for years. But, you know, media just found out and wrote such a long 
story about it. That's one thing. Where secondly, you know, there was a trend that a lot of reporters come to town, the new reporter come to town. They cover the same story, right? The, the ghost of sound story, everyone has to cover about the, it. The rent a white guy story that everyone had to write <laughs> in the first year. Right. Yeah, and, and also... I mean, it, it's the nature of journalism that you have to go to the craziest or, you know, most outrageous situation to write about. That's the tendency. You mentioned just now, you're, you're reminding me of two people, um, especially this is, has to do with, with COVID mm. information internal to China. Peter Hessler wrote several articles during the epidemic and uh, his experience. And they're very valuable if any Americans read them in The New Yorker, you know, because it was an on the ground look at what was really happening yeah. here, good and bad. I mean, it wasn't all negative. He, he was showing, you know, how uh, the actually system worked very well. The other one is Ian Johnson, who, who was writing a yeah, little bit course. about before. Now, both those people are now gone for various reasons, Ian because he was kicked yeah. out, right? But this is the kind of reporting that we need, that, that I think Americans need to be reading in order to understand. Yeah. And now it's, as Jeremiah said, it's going, it's increasingly difficult uh, to do that. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it's not all that difficult if the, if the domestic, if the American corporate media were interested in getting this story, it wouldn't be that hard to get it. They could call you up. Or they could, you know, they could they could talk to any Chinese person here. They have Beijing branches, right? Yeah, yeah. They don't do it because it's it's not uh, sexy, you know, the, the news story that they want. The editors and wouldn't want it. That's right. right. That's it's this is the point. They have a sort of a point of view. There's so many others, so many other distractions. Yeah. With the, and so, uh, you know, it's not just a, it's a problem with this American media system. It's lots and lots of problems. With by the way, the opposite in China, we have you have lots of journalists sort of pundits, talking heads like Zhang Weiwei and this guy named mm. Shen Yi, who's on Guangxia Media, you know, mostly bashing the United States. But but from a very informative standpoint, mm. they know what they're talking about, and they can give you details about mm. it. And they're on uh, the internet anyway, if not yeah. state media. And that's a lot of information they're, they're passing on to viewers about the, uh, uh, the, the U.S. situation. There's nothing even remotely like that in the U.S., Nothing. There's no channel that gives that level of information. I would just jump in there, though, to say that, I and mean, I'm not an advocate for bringing like crossfire style pundit slugathons to other countries. It's a it's a terrible thing that's kind of infected American cable news, particularly. However, you may not see, for example, a well informed academic or intellectual having their own talk show and having it be as as widely seen as some of the cases, some of the shows that are in China, some of the pundits that are in China. On the other hand, something you will never see in China is somebody going on there and giving the opposite point right. of view in a mm. very forceful, informed way. Yeah, that's very important. And that creates its own asymmetry. That's right. That's, that's true. That's true. But at least, you know, the thing is, uh, what we haven't brought up is that, you know, we're talking about mostly who has access to this foreign information. It's a relatively small elite group, mm. and we're among, among or you are certainly among that group. Come on, man. Everybody in China's got a VPN. <laughs> I think I read that on Twitter. <laughs> well, that's a good example because Twitter, according to their a few years ago, they reported that they had something like 10 million active users in China. Twitter reported this, so hmm. that's an example. But, but so, 10 but million, it's a steal. A that's a lot. That's a lot. And you and you, we all know that if you go to state media, you go to corporations, even even uh, college professors. Every every professor at Peking University has a has a VPN. Virtually everyone, and I know this from personal experience because. Do they use uh, it? Let me give you an example, and Jeremiah could know about it. We, Jeremiah and I were teaching these uh, young students who couldn't go to the U.S. for their undergraduate uh, uh, degrees uh, uh. last year, mostly. And these were very elite students who, who were going to Cornell or different universities, right? And this was a class of, you know, 20 people, and they're all like 18, 19. They're itching to go to the U.S., right? You know, when we came to distributing class information, I said, do, do any of you have VPNs? They all had VPNs. Having APN and choosing to use VPN—that's two totally different things. Right, exactly. But uh, that, uh, that, but I'm just, I'm just saying, even having the access, there's a lot of people who take take it for granted. They may get some information. They're not politically oriented. They don't care, but they have the access to it. And and sometimes just the knowledge is a powerful thing, even if you don't want to make use of it. Right. 
I'm not totally surprised that my 19-year-old male students had VPNs because I've said this before on this podcast, and I, I will die on this hill. I think a lot of the, I mean, most of the VPN usage in China has very little to do with accessing Twitter or looking at the New York Times or researching like the latest human rights data. It comes down to two things, man. Video games and porn. Exactly. Exactly. Having VPN VPN doesn't mean anything. And when you talk about a social elite in this chi- in, in this country, that's uh, such a wide um, definition. You know, how how do you de- define elite? If I see it, you know, it's supposed to be you know highly educated, international, and have a critical thinking, but not necessarily. If you look at my circle including my social circle, and people are so different. Even though they work in um, leading uh, multinational companies, leading international organizations, a lot of people, they, they don't know how, for example, the Ukraine war is covered in BBC or CN. You know, Xinhua News Agency is good for them. It's good enough for them. Well, but I have a question. This is a kind of a counterfactual, something the way, the way I imagine these situations. Some you can, you know, take issue with me. Mm. But... Um, I think of uh, governance here in China, and it's a very complicated thing at many different levels. But if you look at the people who are the administrators, the bureaucrats, the, the party members, you know, a lot of those people, especially the younger ones who are in the 40s and 50s, they've all been to the U.S. or their kids are going to school mm. in the U.S. They've got a lot of information. They go back and forth. They've been to other countries and so forth. And, they, and many of them, if not all of them, speak at least some English or even sometimes mm. pretty good English. And these are the people who are in that world who are helping to make policy, right? You go to the U.S. situation, and I wonder, you know, who are the people surrounding Biden? I know that some of the China experts surrounding Trump were just jokes, Peter Navarro and Mike, you know, and but then also just at the lower levels. Now, Jeremiah, I know a lot of these people. There are, there are some really savvy China hands in the, in the U.S. and in the, in the West, academics, people at universities. Those people know what they're talking about, and they're they you know they're they're very valuable assets. But really, how many of, of those how, beyond that, and it's a very kind of limited ac- academic dialogue going on. Uh, beyond that, how many people in the in the governance system really know China at that level? Do they care about China? I think China really care about the U.S., but I really don't think the U.S. care about bingo, China. Bingo, bingo. I think that's a brilliant observation, uh, sort of an, an observation. So this is the analogy I've used probably for too long. But as some people know, I grew up in New England, and I grew up oh a gosh. Boston Red Sox fan. There it comes. We really don't like the New York Yankees. Boston Red Sox fans obsess about the New York Yankees. What did the Yankees do? Who did the Yankees sign? What's going on with the Yankees? We hate the Yankees. People will start Yankee suck chants at weddings in Boston. Now, I know people from New York, and I know people from New York, they kind of follow the Red Sox, and they notice them, and they, they you know, it's a big, it's a trade or something, they'll, they'll make comment about it, and the New York papers do write about the Red Sox more than they write about some of the other, you know, American League teams. But it is nowhere near the level of fixation, fascination that Red Sox have for the Yankees in that rivalry. It is, it is an asymmetrical rivalry. In the sense that Yankees fans, you know, yeah, the Red Sox, yeah, we, yeah, we don't like them, but the Red Sox fans, like the Yankees, are all we think about. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes feel like here, you read the newspapers, and it's like, what did the U.S. do? The U.S. did this. What is the U.S. up to? This is all about the U.S. And in, in the exactly. U.S., China, China is a well is a covered story, right? But if you look at the front page of the New York Times, China might make that front page once a week. Whereas in the in China, you know, some uh, some story about you know referencing the U.S. the U.S. side or what the U.S. that makes the cover of some, the major newspapers here or the, you know, lead story on the websites at least five or six days a week. Well, I think the New York Times covers China a little bit more than you you're you're hinting at there, but but still, you're exactly right. Front page when stories, I read the, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially the past few years, nearly every day, or at least not front page stories. But the difference is the depth that you're talking about. You're right. Chinese people care about, the, or at least the, the state media does, and, and U.S. media does not care that much about China. I think that's a... But the, it, it, it has to do with the depths. You know, I've, I've, it's been, I've been astonished to read sometimes articles in the, Glo- in the Global Times of Hanzhou Shibao, you know, that get deeply into American culture. They'll even mention 
characters like Rush Limbaugh or right wing talk show hosts or mm. something. It's like, what in the oh, yeah. world are you doing mentioning that level of, of snark or what's the word? Not snark. The Daily Show travels. Yeah, Trevor Noah. I mean, he's superly popular here in China. Do 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 any American audience know any Chinese talk show? I don't think so. No, that's yeah. a, that's that's that, yeah, that's a that's an, a good example. They they follow Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah. You know, they 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 understand American humor and they understand what you know. When Bill Maher comes out and makes a big statement about China at the end of his show, that's passed on in in uh, social media, and people not only are they learning about what at least the, you know some some Americans think about China, but also they're learning about our sense of humor, our way of thinking, our attitude, and our flaws. The Chinese version of Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, they're not on TV. They're, they're you know, they're, they're not, there isn't, I mean, you're right that there are people, there are television personalities that people should be paying attention to. But one reason, I think, that Trevor Noah, for example, is so popular here is because he is... He's entertaining. A, it's entertaining. <laughs> and he's, yeah. and for I think for a lot of people here, there is something kind of thrilling about watching a comedian go after his own government with humor and with reckless abandon in a way that just would never happen here. That, that's why I think there's a, you know, when you talk about China, people have this idea. At least a lot of um, overseas um, uh, audience think, you know, they're everything, everyone in China think the same. But actually it's so different. You know, there's a huge, wide range of of opinion, yeah. of opinion, of taste here, you know, there's a very sophisticated taste, you know, among some. I have to use the word elite, even though I don't like it. Um, you know, they they understand everything. They did. I recently had um, um, an intern who is in his fourth year of uh, university. He read all of the major books um, about foreign policy. Uh, international relations from the, the U.S., published uh, in the U.S. And, you know, people like that who speak perfect English um, and have very thorough and in-depth thinking about China's relationship with, you know, U.S., Europe, that kind of people, you know, exist. But at the same time, you also have somebody like my family <laughs> you know they, they think they know everything what a taxi driver in in, in beijing like they, they think they know everything but they just actually write something and love to comment about it so when, when you're talking about china you know it's there's so many like i said so many layers of complication and there's such a wide range uh of audience of taste of interest so you know you can just say China is like that. China is, you know, this chi Chinese people act like that. It just doesn't make sense. Well, um, you talked about your family, and that makes me think of a, another asymmetry is just the sheer number of Chinese people who are in the United States studying or working or have immigrated. And we're talking about just students alone uh, on the order of 380,000 or so people studying at Chinese people studying at mm -hmm. U.S. universities. And I thought of uh, during COVID, Right, the asymmetry between the, the knowledge of between the passing back and forth between the two countries. The issue with with this was that uh, uh, when COVID hit, and the the a lot of Amer of Chinese students stuck in the United States. There was lots of daily conversations and information flowing back and forth between WeChat, and so like every day, and and also just Chinese social media in general. So a lot of families who didn't, you know, don't speak English and aren't quote unquote elites, you know, were getting a lot of information from their sons and daughters studying there about what was happening. The opposite was not the case. At that time, you had virtually no American students here at all. And those that were, you know, was, weren't necessarily passing things back and forth. Well, I don't know, WeChat, or, but other thing, other aspects. So, I mean, that's, that's just another kind of an example of, of, um, you know, I don't know what this I don't know what the implications are, but it just seems to me that this eventually translates into some kind of dangerous asymmetry, where where China as a whole, even the grassroots, mm. have a, a a very deeper, more nuanced understanding of American American culture and American life than we Americans have of Chinese life, and it, I think it's already biting us in the butt in many ways, in the way that we're, there, we're our, our foreign policy is playing out and the way that we're treating the rise of China. Mm. 
but in other ways, you know, I just know what to think about it. Well, I, I think we, it's kind of interesting that, that this week we have almost a, a case study in the way information flows and the way different events get understood. And I, I think, as David likes to say, as a timestamp, we are recording this on February 28th. And, you know, this is just a you know, couple of days into the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Or as, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Hua Chunying refers to it as, yeah, a couple of Russians kind of driving around the Ukraine highways. No idea what's going on there. <laughs> but it is very, two things about this, at least for me, and I, I really want to know what you, what, what you both think. The first one is that it is interesting the way international reaction and Chinese reaction, at, I think at first, really divert, was very different, but has in some ways, I think, started at least in some quarters to come together. I also think it's been kind of interesting the way, and by, what I, by that I mean that the idea that there's a lot of people around the world who are supporting the Ukraine, I think, is now reaching people in China and causing not everyone. Yes, there's a whole bunch of incels out there on Weibo right now who are just like, yay, Putin. But there's a whole bunch of people in the U.S. right now who are the same. But that said, I think there is, a, I think there is kind of a, a bleed between how the world is reacting and how people in China are seeing it. The other thing about it, too, and I, I don't know what's going on here because I'm not obviously privy to the thinking of Jong Nanhai, although if wishing made it so, there wasn't as much of an effort or the effort to massage and to guide public opinion hasn't either been robust or hasn't been working quite as well as it ordinarily does in terms of major international events. And it's, re it's created some interesting spaces where we're seeing both like Go Putin and send us your Ukrainian women and, you know, people from China, other people who are posting pictures of the Ukrainian flag or reposting uh, video of Ukrainian President Zelensky giving speeches. And I, I, I find that to be really interesting and kind of watching that in real time. And the last thing I would say about this, too, is that, you know, just today or just in the last 24 hours, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has actually come out and said to, you know, people who are online in China, be careful what you're saying because it is starting to leak outside of China's borders. And this thing about cheering on Putin and, you know, send us your Ukrainian women, the Ukrainians are starting to hear about this. And it's actually having real on the ground effects for Chinese students who are there. Now, I, I don't know how that's playing out in, in reality because, again, this is just from the statements that we're reading. But it is, it is kind of an interesting time to kind of be thinking about how this information flows. And I'd like to know what you guys think about, think about this. At least in my WeChat friends moment, everyone is a support, a supporting Ukraine. I remember vividly on Thursday when this happened, the news came out saying that the, the, the war just started. Uh, we have a four colleagues within the office just learned that at where stand. And everyone was like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening. Everyone felt for uh, Ukrainians. First, it's a surreal to have war in 2022. And secondly, feel like it's unbelievable why this is happening. But at, of course, if you look at online, you know, there were a lot of stupid people and su support Russia for this. And so that, that, that's come back to what I mentioned, you know, there's no, not one China or one group of people think in one way, even within family, you can have different opinions. I'm sure it's the same situation in the U.S., right? A lot of families split split it because of they have very different political opinion. It's the same thing. You know, I have a different opinion with my dad about, you know, how to see Mao Zedong. He's still a big lover of Mao. But me and my mom, we feel like, why? <laughs> so it's the same thing. You know, I think there's a lot of common things in the U.S. and in China like that. Uh, you know, this might be another example of the asymmetry, though, because um, China obviously has a very good idea of what China thinks about the mm. Ukraine situation. But a lot of people also have a pretty good idea of what the U.S. and other foreign countries are saying because they're getting the messages at the same time. If they're interested in it, they certainly know this. America is a very information porous nation. I mean, theoretically, there's any they can get access to anything whatsoever mm. throughout the entire world. If they're willing to use translation programs, they could even read the People's Daily every day, you know, if they wanted to. But they don't. And it's this gets back to this fundamental thing you mentioned, which I think is brilliant. It's a matter of interest. It's a matter mm. of focus. The U.S. media is just not focused on China or even uh, here's an example. I mean, you know, I would think like during the covid crisis, it would have been very easy for CNN or, you know, any news organization in the U.S. to just get some Chinese people together via satellite or whatever and say, what's happening in your country? You know, how is this being solved? Are you satisfied? The same thing would be happening in, in Russia right now. It's not a good time, but it wouldn't be that hard. They, I, they do have 
correspondence there, you could be talking to Russians and getting a sense of this different these different opinions, the, 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 the range of opinions, but they're not doing it in the U.S. But it's not as simple as you think. I, 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 I feel, actually, I, I personally feel this in a position um, for, for my work, uh, organize one of the largest conference in, in the world. And you know, coming from the China team, one of our major job is to make sure we have good speakers to speak on the China matter, to help the world to understand China. That's exactly my job on a, on a daily right. basis. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, uh, we have a small communities and with, with a leading Chinese expert. So we, we talk about this a lot, how to bring good Chinese expert on the international stage and make sure, you know, they, have the audience who are sophisticated, who are willing to know China, who want to have a balanced view about what's going on in this country, right? To, to talk, you know, not only me, I think people, me, my colleague, and the people who are trying to do exactly the same thing, facing a few challenges. First, because of a tightened political environment, fewer and fewer people like to speak on the international stage. You know, it wouldn't do them any good if they do, but if if they say something uh, accidentally, you know, that, that the government doesn't like, it have a bad impact to them. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. yeah, go on. And secondly, being able to explain the complication that we just talked about for 30 minutes in two to three minutes comment on a thing, it's impossible, right? Right. And on top of that, you have to speak in English in a language, in a way that the international audience understands. Right. Right? I, I, took me 30, 40 minutes to do a presentation to introduce about Chinese Communist Party to my colleague in Geneva. But that takes so much to explain why Communist Party member doesn't mean crazy maniac. But you know, that need context, need way to explain how it works. But a lot of time people don't have a patience to hear the full story. Mm. So you just have to explain in a way that people can easily understand. That brings a lot of challenges, right? There are at least for a really high level international stage that I, I, I look for, there are very few Chinese experts who can do that in a way that people happy to listen to. And also that kind of a political risk I just, uh, also put people... I so appreciate in, what you're yeah. saying because I think that's really very important and kind of bolsters something I've been trying to say. What you're saying is that in a situation where there is that context already because of prior information, then you can insert new information in in a context and the, 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 the viewers, the listeners, whatever, can, uh, can understand it. What you're, you're describing here precisely is the U.S. problem, is that they don't have the context. So how are you going to explain something like this? How could you possibly explain what's happening with COVID-19 if they don't understand how Chinese society works? I think there are a couple of things going on here. I think you're absolutely right that there isn't the there, as Yajun says, there isn't the patience, there isn't the context, there isn't the demand for, if we will, and this is a highly problematic set of words into a highly problematic term, authentic Chinese voices to be you know, on air about COVID or about Ukraine or about any of these topics. And I think that is very much true. On the other hand, I would also say that if there were people, who, there were journalists who were being harassed, hustled away and threatened with arrest for asking people you know, a couple of weeks ago if they thought the Olympics were fun so, you know, I don't know the logistics of how do you get, you know, a, a family or a group of people or a panel discussion on CNN of, of ordinary Chinese folks when they would be, when, you know, the whole apparatus is designed to prevent that from happening. So I, I think there's there's both things are going on here. I think what you're saying is very true. And what Yajun said is true. There's a context issue. There's also a lack of interest issue. But I think we... And we, political we, issue. Yeah, we have to Tighten acknowledge the political, political issue, issue. As, yeah. as well. So that's why I, I think the, the best way to enhance communication to solve this kind of asymmetry, symmetrical issue is through people to people exchange, right? Another um, bingo. I think that's so important. Yeah, which yeah. Which is what we're trying I, to do. You know, that's part of our goal, to our your endeavor. Podcast. Yes. Right. <laughs> if you ask for some compliment about your podcast, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. I actually think David was referring to our employment prospects as yeah, teachers, international studies programs. But yes, <laughs> the podcast. That too. We'll, we'll go that with too. that. We'll go with that. That too. So actually, because the, the complicated situation, people don't willing to talk about it in public settings. 
for example, if I want to do a U.S.-China geopolitical、uh, panel, I do I I don't know who to invite to a public setting from the China side. To be honest, of course there are a lot of great Chinese international relation experts, but I'm not sure under public setting whether they are going to say what they really think about, what they just have to say the public line, you know, that the government allowed them to say. So that's my dilemma. So. I noticed that the truth come out from whispers, from a small gathering that people whisper to each other. You know, they share their real thoughts. That's where you get the real deal. I feel like if we can have more of those kind of gatherings, more of the, those kind of exchange, then people can have the patience, you know, in that setting to understand each other and to know more. Have the patience to know more what's going on. People have a real people-to-people conversation. I think there's a reverse. There's a there's a different problem in the U.S. though for conferences, for talking head、uh, spots on TV, on shows, and and in the media. Many of the people that I see that are going that are part of panels, part of discussions, and part of you know being invited to talk on you know Fareed Zakaria and that kind of thing. There's a lot of diversity. The, there's more diversity these days in terms of national origin and gender. But a lot of the people that keep coming up there as China experts haven't been in China in a while. That's right. That's and, and I mean the you know I subscribe to all the newsletters and you know I like them. It's a an exa- great example of media monitoring. But you know a lot of the people who are who are pundits who are writing about China, a lot of them haven't lived in China. In a meaningful way, and at least, and I mean, just a minimum of five years. Certainly not in the last two years. And so, what what's happening is that the it's creating this kind of you know part of this is the COVID enforced separation, but the echo chamber effect, right, which is happening in the U.S. when people kind of like you know you start seeing people speculating, you know, or you know you start seeing people saying things like my sources in China, which you know we all know is like yeah, this is stuff my intern pulled off Weibo and I ran it through Google Translate. It is a challenge in the、right. U.S. and I also think. Think though that in China too, even when we have the situation where there's these whispers, the whispers are starting to bounce back at each other because there's no new blood coming in. People aren't going to the international conferences. In fact, part of that's COVID. Part of that too is new policies that the government's put in、that's、place,、right. making it very difficult for、that's、academics、right. to travel. Right. So、right. I I I worry that even when you know even apart from COVID. And a part the geopolitics of it are creating new distortions in this information asymmetry that we're going to be dealing with for you know years to come. That's unfortunately the case. <laughs> it's a it's almost like there's two different forces. One is a kind of a top down force in China, and the other is a kind of a bottom up indifference, ignorance in the U.S.,、uh, which leads to to just apathy. Whereas in China, you have you have a new era now of Chinese powers, and including soft power and Xi Jinping. So it's it's getting increasingly harder. And as as you said, you know, really the the one to one interactions are so important, and that's the that's the basis for these eventually. And I agree with what Jeremiah is saying. You know, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of an echo chamber with. The Fareed Zakaria's, the Ian Bremers, and then all the Gordon Chang—that's you know always ask on, you know—and these are these are some savvy people, with the exception of the last one. <laughs>、uh, but、uh, yes, they haven't been in China. They haven't spent a long time in China. And I think if you could get、uh, you know someone like a, you know Scott Kennedy or Jude Blanchett, Blanchett or somebody like that who's been in China, who is who whose whose answer to reporters' questions would be based upon. Literally hundreds and thousands of private conversations with Chinese scholars, bureaucrats, administrators, and so forth. That's so so important, it's, and it's now be- under threat on both sides. It's harder and harder to 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 build that kind of person. Yeah, but I I think as China become a stronger and stronger second largest economy in China and the biggest、uh, carbon emitter in、yeah. in the world right now, so every Conference you go to every session you go to as long as related you know to climate issue or global value chain you know digital economy that thing that kind of thing you have to talk about China. I, I went to an Economist uh, event uh, as a it was a, a global event and the people ask five questions and three and a half of them are about China. But there was half. <laughs> what's the half question? The other half, half not only about China but also、oh, another another、okay. country.、Right. So, yeah. So so you you can imagine on the global level, people have to talk about China. 
but you don't have a Chinese people to comment on that. You have a lot of a global handed to, to mm-hmm. talk about it. Of course, you know, many of them have a lot of experience, but mainly from the outside, because, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's so com- complicated for people to come in. China transformed so quickly. We live here. We, we can see that, right. you know, the policy or the situation works last year. It wouldn't work this year. Alibaba knows that, right? <laughs> right <laughs> you know, last exactly. year there was still a, a typhoon, a tycoon, and right now, you know, they, they're under such a tight. There's more and more Chinese people that don't understand China. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I feel that. I feel that, that every single day, you know, everything changes so fast. You know, their data policy, their climate, you know, policy. People need to adjust really quickly to catch up. Even though you know we're in China, but you know, thinking about how challenging it can be for overseas audience. Yeah, one thing I just wanted to kind of point out too is that we're talking a lot about the, the challenges of, of information and the, in some ways too, the, the challenges that people have in delivering information to their target audiences. I, I think it's important to point whether we're talking about Chinese academics or Chinese experts or we're talking about international journalists or international China watchers, I, I personally, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them for what they're doing in their jobs in the, in the sense that almost everyone I know who's in those fields, whether it's in China or the U.S., generally are doing the best they can. But what we are talking about here are forces at work that are making that information asymmetry that much greater, despite the efforts of these people. The reality is that many people who, who like, you know, the experts that you think would be excellent at coming in here and, and kind of processing and explaining China— Let's be honest, their ability to get visas to do that would be extremely limited. The kind of experts that yeah, June's looking that yeah, June wants to book for international conferences who would be would give a very nuanced and contextualized, you know, description of what's going on in China and Chinese foreign policy. They're not always able to go when they're able to go they have to perform for an audience that's not the one in front of them but the one that's listening back home. And of course that you know, that puts restrictions on what they can say. That and with consequences that, frankly, many international China watchers can't even imagine that were happening to them. Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I think that what we're looking at here is some real structural issues, less so than kind of a, la- a lack of trying on the part of individuals. So Yajin, in your in your circles, and because you know you, you've done many different things, and it all has to do with with cross cultural, cross national issues, and in your in your particular circle of, of friends, both you know Chinese and and foreign or American, uh, whatever nationality, what sort of impression do you get, you as a, as a representative of China, someone born and raised in China, how do you feel about when you, when you deal with them? Do you feel like you're dealing with, with, by and large, with people who are on the same page and understand? Or do you sometimes feel like, you know, you're always having to explain the complexities or work around certain misapprehensions that people have? Or, you know, what's your, what's your gen, uh, sort of a general impression over the, your many years of, uh, in, in these different fields? I feel like I'm stuck in the middle. One of many uh, people I know in my circle that we are stuck between China and, and the West, I would say. Yeah. Because we kind of uh, know the situation from both sides and uh, see the good and the bad for, from the both side, And we also understand how important to have two sides to work with each other. But at the same time, we are the one, because we are stuck in the middle, we, we try to you know, relay message from one side to the other side. Sometimes we are the one can be criticized uh, from both sides, mm. right? So I'm, I'm not the only person in this kind of a situation. I, I know actually um, a community uh, of my friends or people I, I got to know during the work. They're doing an amazing job. They're war in this kind of uh, situation that either in working in communication, or in journalism, or in NGO, uh, or multinational companies. They, they, they know the complication from both ends and try to enhance the understanding and the communication from each side. But right now, it's really, really tough, right? People don't, like, like we, we spent last 40 minutes talking about, you know, how it, it's a metric of each other's understanding. It, it's the real issue. And also, I do feel a little bit pessimistic about how willing people are to understand. You know, from the yeah. China side, like I mentioned that, you know, this kind of arrogance right. 
about you know we're much better than the U.S. or the other countries, so we don't know we don't need to know what's going on right. in the other country. I think it's even worse in the U.S. Right? They, they, many people are not interested even uh, to get to know other country. Definitely not China. Yeah. That answers my question. But you you said something to which to me is very interesting and very telling, which is you said you feel like you're stuck in the middle, and you also said you feel like there's a lot of us who are stuck in the middle who are explaining this is kind of what i'm talking about because i kind of feel for you and i think i'm sort of in that position i know jeremiah is also in this in this position but i think i don't think there are a lot of those people stuck in the middle on our side in other words i agree you're you know a very exceptional person but as you say there are a lot of people like you with good english that live in both worlds there aren't a whole lot of people and i'm not bragging or saying you know, anything i'm just saying that the sheer numbers of people like us that feel stuck in the middle versus the people, Chinese people who are stuck in the middle, there's not even, there's no factor of a hundred difference, right? And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. That's very important. Try to put something in a more upbeat situation, right? Global traveling is allowed, kind of, to a certain extent, resumed outside of China, uh-huh. right? Right. This is definitely going to have some impact to the Chinese government to put some pressure on them. Uh, I just saw the news um, just now, actually. Uh, apparently, CDC is talking about trying to find a middle way, neither zero COVID nor uh, fully open. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope there's some wiggle room for the interna- international travel to be allowed to a certain extent, definitely not to fully open. But if in any environment, you know, this kind of exchange can be allowed, uh, and I start to observe that people after two years, particularly in my circle, people try to go out, even though they know they may need to go through quarantine, but people still take the risk. Uh, some of my colleagues, um, they're thinking about to take a trip in April or May, even though they know they may need to go through quarantine. I think it start to come back. So when people start to travel, there will be more opportunity to exchange, to communicate. And because they, they are stuck in China for such, such a long time, they, they, m- many of them want to extend their trip and do several trips, combine them together to go to different places. So hopefully, you know, that this year in 2022, it, the situation can change a little bit. You can see more Chinese, you know, be, speak on the international stage, you know, sharing what's going on uh, in details mm-hmm. in a way that the international audience understand. That's well, much more upbeat. Thank you, thank you for that. Well, well thank you, Yajun, for joining us on this uh, Barbarian at yes, the Gates thank you Woman Podcast crossover episode. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, all of you out there, for listening to this episode. You can find us, of course, wherever you get podcasts. And from David, Yajun, and I, we'll talk to you next time. 